If you love the Intelligence Squared podcast, you can support the show and help us do what we do by hitting subscribe via Apple Podcasts. And in return, you'll get bonus content, ad-free listening, and early episodes too. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. On the show today, Christopher Blattman, the academic and author whose new book looks at an unfortunately timely and timeless topic, why we fight... Christopher Blattman is an economist and political scientist whose work explores why societies turn to violence and why poverty and oppression often go hand in hand with conflict. Christopher is a professor of global conflict studies at the University of Chicago and his research has taken him from studying poverty in Uganda to street gangs in Medellin. He's also investigated the likes of dictators, monarchs, mobs, football hooligans and ancient civilizations along the way in order to get a better understanding of two questions. Why do we fight and what can be done about it? That's also the title of his book, Why We Fight, The Roots of War and the Paths to Peace. Our host for today's discussion is Carl Miller, research director at the Center for Analysis of Social Media at the Think Tank Demos. Here's Carl with more. Very, very warm welcome, Chris, to Intelligence Squared. Thanks, Carl. Right. Let's begin with one of the first realizations, actually, that you make in the book, that conflict is actually an extremely rare thing for human beings to do. I, I'm, I was very taken, there was an, the, an early quotation that you put in the book, there is no instance of a country having benefited from prolonged warfare from Sun Tzu. So, I mean, it's a, you know, I didn't write a book called Why We Don't Fight, so I don't want to belabor this point. Uh, I think it's a useful starting point um, to remember that it's not our natural state. Uh, you know, rather, you know, it, it, it also feels like a, a strange moment to be saying this because we have this sort of looming great power war perhaps and what's going on in Ukraine. But you know, two weeks into that that conflict, um, India accidentally launched a cruise missile at Pakistan and common suit as, as it mostly has between India and Pakistan for decades. And, and so what I merely want us to do is to sort of put that in context, sort of like a doctor who treats the critically ill but remembers that most of us are healthy and that it's possible to get healthy uh, to to actually remember that that the normal state of humanity is not violence, and that the really powerful incentives, pull, pull, you know, pushing us to find, you know, some other way to 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 divide the spoils. Do you think that's a kind of an endemic weakness, perhaps, with with how human beings, intellectuals, writers, researchers often focus on problems? Because it reminds me, for instance, of lots of research around extremism that really only focused on extremists rather than people that didn't become extreme, or or even, you know. It's technology, social media platforms, you know, who, who admonish us just when we just focus on the hate speech rather than actually looking at all the myriads and vastly different other ways in which social media platforms are used. So it's, it felt like you were making actually quite an important and, and quite general point there around actually truly understanding phenomena, not just by focusing on the one thing that we don't want to happen. Yeah, and actually, it's, it's a really deep and common social science concept. I mean, social science is called selection on the dependent variable, and it's like one of the most basic analytical areas you can make in any field. And 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 it's so I could just focus on the hate speech, or just focus on the conflict, or just focus on the sick, and never pay attention to the other cases. And and partly that's just going to make you really demoralized, which is not a great situation to be in. But mostly, it's it's a problem because you're going to get. You're going to diagnose the situation completely wrongly if you're only if you're looking at like this really select set of cases. And so it's I'm more just sort of pointing out that if we want to understand why these bad things happen, we actually you know want to 
compare them to all the cases when they don't. And that's the basis for understanding why we fight. How did this kind of this, this initial realization, I suppose, that, that, that there needs to be very good reasons for a conflict to occur. Mm-hmm. How did that begin to bubble up? I mean, was, was that largely through your kind of anthropological work, kind of actually being situated in these societies and, and realizing that they were actually much more pacific than, than, than they're typically kind of, kind of supposed to be? So I think after a while, I, I think you'll, I started seeing it everywhere, but it's not so, so when I, and I start the book off with, with some episodes of peace and the normal state of peace and gang wars in Medellin, which is a place I've long been working. But I think it was actually a really deep point that has come from uh, the science of strategy and game theory for almost 50, 60 years, people like Thomas Schelling, but I think also goes back to, Mao, who, who, and 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 von Clausewitz, so great military generals, who have pointed out that politics and warfare are sort of two different means of getting, of basically bargaining, basically attaining what you want versus your adversary, and uh, and that one of them is just bloody and costly, and so we ought to prefer the we ought to prefer to find, you know, we ought to prefer politics to uh, bargaining through bloodshed. And, 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 and so I think, so I think it was that it was actually this theoretical point. And then only once I sort of realized that, did I start to realize all of the, the you know, the selection that I was doing on my own. Hmm. I, w- I want to make a, just a, a quick note to listeners here. We are going to get onto Ukraine. I promise we will. Um, <laughs> because what, what Chris has done is, 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 is kind of develop this it, it, very general, it seems very powerful framework for understanding conflict. So we do need to talk about that, and then we're going to try and apply that to, the, to, the, to understand the situation in Ukraine. Um, before we plunge into this framework, Chris, one, one kind of final preparatory question. Tell us about kind of the, the words you're using here, kind of conflict and war and struggle, because obviously war is actually extremely well-defined kind of rules-bound activity. Is, is that yeah. what you really mean when you're talking about when societies do and don't kind of enter into a kind of state of conflict? Or is, it, is, is this a more general thing? So I, th- I guess I wanted us to focus on the activity of really prolonged battling and fighting. The thing where, whether at every level, right? I, at a village, it could be ethnic groups, um, you know, pulling out the machetes and destroying property and, setting things on fire day after day after day. And at a gang level, it could be trading bullets day after day after day. And at a country level, it could be sustained pitched battles, right? This is the activity that I wanted to sort of, and and I wanted to say this is ruinous and costly and all sides strive to avoid it. Um, and they rather they prefer to compete in other nefarious, bitter ways but that that are simply not as costly, right? And so, you know, so I'd like to sum it up as enemies prefer to loathe in peace. Uh, and 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 that's a concept that I think, you know, some, you know, in peace studies, people would call it, you know, I'm talking about negative peace. I'm sort of saying the absence of pitched battles mm-hmm. is is what we're sort of trying to understand why that's rare and why we shouldn't maybe overdiagnose it in the world. All right. Well, let now let's let's talk about this framework. So, I mean, you, was it at all nerve-wracking? Because I, I guess you're stepping into one of the most contested, the most debated questions that human civilization has ever tried to deal with, the question of why why we have conflict. You know, war studies, peace studies, there's, there's, there's natural resource conflict theorists over on one side. You know, you've got great man 
you know, um, explanations of history. You've got the Marxist and structural explanations. Almost every serious school of of, of intellectual and 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 scholarly explanation has has posited a theory for why wars happen. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you make sense of a dizzyingly broad kind of array of theories and and and, yeah. and the evidence bases out there? Well, I mean. I, I mean, I had to do a lot of sense making on my own. I mean, I think the job was made easier by the fact that I think there are dozens and dozens of scholars who have been trying to do some sense making for decades. And so for me, writing the book was born of an act, born of frustration that all of these insights and some of the organization that I provide in the book is was had been around for 30 years. Um and it's only a slight exaggeration to say there's no original ideas. I'm just trying to sort of boil down all these ideas that have been there and some of these frameworks for people to to manage. I think though, what I what 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 the problem that was out there is there's a set of sort of strategic diagnoses of war that that employ a lot of game theory and economics and and some political science. And then there's a lot of sort of more psychological theories of war. And often those sense makers who are out there don't bring the two together. And so partly I wanted to bring these sort of different social sciences together and sort of show that they can talk to one another and we can look at them through a common lens. So I'm not saying my theory is right, all the other theories are wrong. I'm trying to say, here's a way, here's a way to look at all the existing theories that are out there and just understand them in a different light. And, and they and they ultimately, I think you argue, boil down to five main logics, as you call them. Let's just go through them quickly. What are those logics? Sure. So the first thing I like to tell people and have them remember is that war is ruinous. And so every answer to why we fight is a reason that our societies, our leader, ignore those costs. And, and that usually these reasons, which are many, boil down into five main ways in which we ignore, overlook the costs. And I call them unchecked interests, intangible incentives, uncertainty, commitment problems, and misperceptions. This bargaining through bloodshed and destruction and arson and all this is ruinous. War is ruinous. And every answer to why we fight is a reason that a society or its leaders overlook those costs. And, and then in the book, I sort of say, well, there's five main ways that happens. But what they all have in common is there are different ways in which our societies, a society or its leaders are overlooking or ignoring this brutal cost of war. So, so they're kind of aberrations, if you will, or, or kind of almost like ira- irrationalities. Well, I wouldn't say that. Decision making. There are aberrations. The reason I hesitate from that is because sometimes it's deeply strategic and even optimal. There's circumstance. It's a set of, so some of the things we do are irrational. But there are also circumstances, situational factors that make fighting and make us ignore the lead us to ignore the costs of war or lead us to gamble on the costs and sort of lead us down that path, even if we're the most cold blooded and calculating rational computers. Tell us about unchecked interests, the first logic, you know, when decision makers aren't accountable for the cost. Because because in, in now beginning to to bring Ukraine right. into the picture, it, that, that felt to me like one of the most apposite kind of uh, explanations for what's happening now. I think it's a really basic and the least talked about cause of war. Um, it's the idea that it's incredibly ruinous, but if the people who are deciding whether to take a group to war aren't accountable for those costs, then they're going to be too ready to use violence. And so, you you know, a personalized dictator is the ultimate example. But but of course, you know, democratically elected presidents may have they can ignore some costs. And what's more is most leaders to some they may have their own private incentives and their own sort of power grabbing that they can use war to obtain. 
right? And so that's another, that's sort of an example of an unchecked or unaccountable leader deciding to use war. It's bad for the group, but it's good for them. And this, I think, explains a tremendous amount of conflict in the world. And and would of all the logics that that I'm sh- uh, that that you you pose here is 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 that the one that you lean on most when trying to make sense of recent events? Uh, yes, for two reasons. One is because I do think that Putin is a personalized dictator, and this is. I, I think if Russia were run by a a, a Politburo still instead of a, a personalized ruler. I, th- I think this conflict would have been less likely to happen. I think if it was a plutocracy of, you know, financial oligarchs, which it turned out not to have been, right? There's oligarchs, but they weren't that politically powerful or organized. I think this conflict would have been less likely than it is. So I think whenever power is more broadly spread, um, not just because it compels the ruler to internalize more of those costs and maybe not pursue, pursue these private agendas, but because all the other four factors which we're going to talk about, and we can come back to this, but I think all these other four factors get aggravated by that super centralized power. Another logic that that felt like it was relevant was was the idea of misperceptions or mistaken beliefs. Did, yeah. Does that come into the story, especially say around the the the, the likely outcome of the war at the beginning, and the, you know the yeah. Ukraine would crumple, Kiev would fall in days? Right. So I so so this is this is gets back to the to the potential irrationality of war is maybe we ignore the costs because we underestimate them systematically, or we systematically overestimate our chances of victory. There could be psychological roots of our overconfidence. Um, There can also be institutional roots. So when people talk about Putin being an isolated, insulated autocrat who is getting poor information because of the whole political structure, they're basically saying that this is a, there's systematic misperception such that Putin is, is going to war because he's making a, He's basically acting on bad information. And I think that's possibly true. But then what I usually like to point out alongside that is, so that's an, that's an example, classic example of misreception. So we ignore the costs or overestimate the benefits. But there's this third factor, one of the five, that I like to point to in this example of uncertainty, uh, which is to say that this by saying this was a bias or misperception or mistake, I think understates the extent to which um, this is an incredible. All, all conflicts, all adversarial relationships, we really don't know the strength resolve of our of our enemies. And and just to use the Ukraine as an example, the the idea that you know five months ago, think remember how uncertain it was, how strong Russia would be, how uh, how brave and resilient and plucky Ukrainians would be, or how resolved the West would be on sanctions. And the idea that Russia would get a bad draw on all three of these things was always within the realm of possibility, but I don't think anyone predicted it, least least, least of all Vladimir Putin. And so amidst this uncertainty, war is always a gamble, right? Because, and, and, and of course, you'd like to just resolve that uncertainty and, and find out the strength and resolve of your adversaries. This is where some of the strategic logic comes in. You can never really trust them to tell you honestly, because they have an incentive to bluff. Right. So it's just like poker. So I like to sort of in this context to hold up misperception and uncertainty together. You can only have misperceptions amidst uncertainty. So how much of this, how much of these wars are just a genuine uncertainty and war is a gamble versus systematically underestimating the costs uh, because you were getting bad information? I don't think we'll really know. The, I think we have to say that the answer is probably both. Not not to dive too too technically here yeah. to say game theory, but, but I imagine also the idea of being uncertain as to how uncertain you are might be a misperception, as in like you, you you're you're misunderstanding yeah. the things you don't know about the world. 
Yeah, so there that's very and that's true in a lot of walks of life, even really high stakes decisions. So we can be overconfident as leaders and as institutions and politicians in two ways. One is we can overestimate our chances of victory, but we can also be overconfident that we underestimate just how uncertain it is. Like we basically we're we're too precise. We're overconfident. We 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 think we don't really recognize just how uncertain it is. And I don't think we would have a mutual fund management industry. If, if, if like human beings couldn't make the same high stakes decision over and over and over again and get it wrong, right. Uh, in a really repeated, it's much simpler than in, you know, with great feedback on just how poorly you're doing relative to the marketplace. And yet it still persists. So, so the idea that this could be happening among political leaders is, is surely true. I mean, it, it, so these three that we begin kind of in many ways seem to kind of lean on all the kind of work that's been done over the last 40, 50 years that kind of, you know, that, that really problematizes the idea of like homo economicus and the rational yeah. actor and actually saying, look at all these biases, look at all these habits, look at all these ways in which human beings make imperfect decisions, you know, in reliable ways. But logic number four, which I think we've reached, seems to me actually to be quite coldly rational in that you can lay out a strategic scenario where it actually makes sense to go to war because there is no peace deal that in those circumstances makes sense. Is, it, yeah. is that right? Is that Because is, I, 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 that also felt like that might have been part of the Russian strategic calculus here. You know, they, they, they knew yeah. that they were on the, on the wrong side of time when it comes to an invasion <laughs> of Ukraine. So I would say sort of of the five logics, three are strategic in the senses that they're, they're cold and calculating. One is just, one is driven by the political structure, unchecked leaders, right? Like the fact that you have that 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 unchecked leader is going to pursue their own interests. We can trust that most of the time. Um, uncertainty was all, and and that the the fact that you might gamble on warfare is, as a quote unquote optimal behavior is also strategic logic. Um, and then this third that you're talking to, which is you you worry that your opponent's unreliable, and there's a potential commitment problem, is is another strategic challenge. Uh, and and a good example in this context is. Um, well, I think there's two. I, 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 let me say, I think it's actually more useful for understanding why this war is hard to end, which is that neither side really trusts the other to be able to hold up to the terms of a settlement. Uh, on, on the Ukrainian side, um, Russia is concerned that of a repeat of the Minsk Accords, which is to say that maybe the top leadership will agree to a deal, but then parliament will refuse to ratify it because it will be so, so unpopular. Uh, and on, and of course, what's on most people's minds, however, is the fact that no one really trusts Putin to stick to any settlement or terms of a deal. They, they worry about him continuing to have incentives because he's unchecked and for other reasons to sort of try to carve off Ukraine or other parts of the former Soviet empire slice by slice. And that any settlement will merely be an opportunity for him to regroup and reattack. And so these are basically... Uh, this phenomenon called commitment problems where there's mm. one is there's no over there's no higher level third power there's no one who can enforce this deal right and then you worry that other act each actor has their own private or political incentives to keep fighting in spite of the in spite of the 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 massive massive costs for sake of completeness i feel like we need to do the fifth logic as well just so we we can see the full framework which is uh, intangible incentives that i couldn't fit I couldn't personally see a way how this one applied to Russia. They seem to be more to do with kind of religious or holy wars or, 
you know, a, a huh. kind of millenn- millennialist conflicts or things like that. I'd say in contrast, I would say, so this is an instance where all of the things where we're, we're aware that war is costly, but we're willing to pay that price. And if anything, it's once you, you know, I think this might be one of the chief ways to understand the war in that's going on. Every time somebody says Putin is pursuing personal glory and a place in history. Mm. Uh, so that's an intangible thing that he's achieving through war that he's willing to pay the costs of war for. And by the way, he's unchecked. Therefore, he doesn't have to pay most of the costs. That's his intangible incentive. Other people point to national glory, getting the empire back together, uh, accounting for recent humiliations or status competition vis-a-vis NATO in the West. All of these are, these are all rational in the sense that our values are values, right? Why do I prefer, you know, you know, Putin is in some sense willing to pay the costs of war. This is the argument uh, because he's obtaining these other things through it. Uh, and, and he doesn't see another means to obtain them. In some sense, war is his, his, his means of last resort to obtain them after 20 years of failing to co-opt Ukraine through every other means possible. And so there are elements, I think, of each of these five that I think, so if anything, I think the newspaper stories dwell a little bit too much on his intrinsic ideological and tangible incentives. And they dwell a little bit too much on the misperceptions and bias, which I think are right. So they dwell too much, as we often do, on the two psychological causes. And I think we dwell a little bit too little on the strategic causes, which is the fact that he's unchecked, that the situation was basically uncertain, and that in this environment, it's very hard for both sides to commit to a deal. Thank you, Chris. That was, that was a brilliant explanation. Um, are, are these um, logics ones that, that initiate war, or do they also sustain war? So, so do you need to keep having these to to, yeah. to, to make a, a war keep going into you know into the future? I mean, to some extent. We, we sort of make a decision to sort of initiate violence every day in the context of a long war, right? Because of a failure to sort of pay attention to the costs. Um, so yes, those in, but, but they can mutate, right? So what do you see happening? What do you often see happening over the course of many, many wars? Not just in Ukraine and Russia, you can see it there, but a lot of civil wars. One is you often see as the, as the atrocities and the destruction mount that people are angry in a way that they weren't beforehand. So maybe they went into the war because they were uncertain. They misperceived the situation that usually gets resolved really quickly, right? All those misperceptions, all that uncertainty is resolved, but what's replaced them is now perhaps a, uh, anger and a desire for vengeance and a desire for justice. That's an intangible incentive, right? That often takes hold that sort of says, I am going to keep fighting merely for the sake of punishing this evildoer. Uh, that's a, that's one that the other thing is the commitment problem, the failure to solve the commitment problem gets us into a war and, and then often is what keeps it going. And, and some people, you know, most wars when they break out are short, actually, you know, we, we remember the long wars, but we forget that most wars actually are just skirmishes. And then when they go beyond skirmishes, most wars end within a few months and only a few go on much longer. And, and some Political economists and historians have made the argument that every long war is actually the function of a commitment problem and the fact that the, the deal is simply impossible for both sides to agree to. Uh, the, the Ukraine war, you know, al- already being, I think, in the, in the, in the minority is, uh, in terms of its duration as an interstate conflict. Um, absolutely. So uh, is there a pattern, Chris, in terms of how the war, a war itself kind of interplays with these various logics, you know? 
does it tend to kind of exacerbate? Does it tend to um, uh, do the opposite? Um, are yeah. there some kinds of logics which which tend to get worse as a conflict draws out? Because I, I was just, I mean, it, 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 it's it's a dim realization, but it feels like actually the, these these months of the Ukrainian war so far have done very little to remove any of these logics from the playing board. You know, Putin is as unchecked he was now, it seems at least to the world as he as he was at the beginning. You know, he's probably even more distant. Um, yeah. And and in terms of a kind of a, 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 a diplomatic compromise, um, a bargain has never felt so far away. So to me, actually, the, the universal constant is just how costly these things grow over time. So and, and, and how that peace exerts this gravitational pull because of that. And so we see this on the news in terms of civilians and soldiers killed or, or destroyed buildings and so forth. Um, where you, where the, where Zelensky and Putin are seeing it are the treasuries being drained and the massively like the, the, the armaments and even just the munitions that they can marshal onto the battlefield are disappearing steadily. But most of all, it's just this question of money. Uh, Ukraine needs half of its, um, and half of its monthly income pre-war to wage the war it's been fighting. It does it's not earning that right now. So it's, it's only getting that through external support and how long they'll get that support is unclear. And Russia um, is facing a 10 or 15% drop in national income. The central head of the central bank called it the phenomenon that will take place is deindustrialization in the country. Uh, and, um, and they're seeing a steadily dropping sort of available number of troops, munition, armaments, parts. So I don't think either side is really as usual, is really prepared to fight this war that much longer. It could happen, right? But I think the dynamic that we always have to focus on that is hard to focus on in these moments is actually just how much the act of fighting narrows the attention of both leaders to just how ruinously costly this is. And I think that's maybe why we've seen a concentration of the war over much smaller stakes in a much smaller region rather than an escalation of this conflict. Would you like to support Intelligence Squared in what we do? Well, just hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts and you can listen to Intelligence Squared ad-free, enjoy exclusive bonus content and get weekly episodes in advance too. Hit subscribe and we'll see you on the other side. Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things and it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, allowing them to close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. It means you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. NetSuite is now making an unprecedented offer to make more of that kind of thing possible. 
Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com squared. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com. Hello from Intelligence Squared. We'd like to invite you to explore the next live-streamed event in the Futureverse, our series produced in partnership with Ytree. In this event, and in the two podcasts that will follow it, we'll be examining a huge cultural shift that we're calling the Value Revolution. Ever since another transformational period, the Industrial Revolution, there has been a global consensus about what constitutes value. Products and services can be exchanged for money, which in turn pays for other products and services. But we are now in an era of disruption. Technology, disease and climate change are some of the key factors that have recently caused us to pause and re-examine our lives. We have entered the value revolution. How do we define value now? And how has this changed over time? Who has a say over what is deemed valuable or worthless? Join us to discuss these questions and more in our next event, Reimagining Worth, with guests including longtime FT columnist and now charity founder, Lucy Kellaway, Adrienne Buller, author of The Value of a Whale, a book that examines the truth of green capitalism, and the banker, co-creator, and host of the award-winning Money Maze podcast, Simon Brewer. The event will be moderated by award-winning journalist and broadcaster, John Sopel. Register to join us live online on Tuesday, 5th of July from 6.30pm. Just go to y-tree.com slash futureverse. That's y-tree.com slash futureverse. All right, well, let's move then towards what might possibly, in some case, de-escalate this conflict, even if it is simply that Russia and Ukraine actually run out of 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 hardware to 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 actually yeah. deploy. Um, let, let, let's begin with the current political environment. So uh, it seems to me, Chris. I don't know about you that, that there's there's it, it, there is you know th- there's been enormous amounts of political criticism levied at any leader in the West to even want to talk about um, uh, paths towards peace. Um, that that's considered to be a compromise that will empower Putin. That that you know. And, and that really the only legitimate party in that conversation will, will be Ukraine when 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 it wants to. Is is that normally how the kind of, uh, I, I guess, a narrative around de-escalation begins in conflicts? Or, or is this different in that sense? Yeah, I think that um, 
okay, so I think we know all wars end. Um, they they can end either in a negotiated settlement or in sort of a frozen conflict. So Kashmir is sort of like a frozen conflict, one where there's no actual peace deal uh, and where a negotiated settlement is just politically very, very difficult. Um, so every, I think I think behind closed doors, most politicians understand that this is probably going to end in one of those two ways. The question is when, and then everyone agrees that a negotiated settlement would be better than a frozen conflict. The the challenge is that there's sort of two challenges. One is there's for understandable reasons, this is an illegal invasion. It's a violation of the UN Charter. It's it's um, you know for for Westerners, it's sort of a resurgent of a traditional enemy, it seems. And, and so people are very angry and outraged about this. And so it's very difficult to talk about, uh, to sort of talk about this publicly, I think is, um, and on top of that, the, the, the sad thing is, is because of how Russian forces have been acting, it's very difficult to imagine how any negotiated settlement that left Russia with any level of Ukrainian territory, which may be very little in the end, uh, but but wouldn't have like a terrible human cost for people who are left on that side of the the official or unofficial border. So I think that's, but the other thing that's going on is it's, this is actually like a strategic weapon, right? If you can roil up your side, right? So let's suppose you're a politician and you know there's going to have to be a negotiated settlement. You're the president of Ukraine and you know as Zelensky has known from the beginning and used to state quite publicly that there's going to have to be a, a settlement and, and they're going, they're going to be painful compromises. There's, the, there's so many possible settlements that are preferable to both sides than warfare. What you would like to do is rile up your population to make a whole set of those settlements, the settlements that are disadvantageous to you politically impossible. So that when you go to the negotiating table with Putin, you can say, listen, I would love to be able to offer you what you are asking, right? Because I want to end this war, but I'm democratically accountable and there's no way I could ever ratify this. And you know this. And so I actually have an, in, I have an incentive to go to the negotiating table, having tied my hands. And then what you hope is that the other side hasn't done the same to such a degree that there's no settlement that's acceptable to your two the two groups to which you're accountable. I was going to and say that's, that's a very that. fine balancing act, isn't it? Because because yeah. uh, you do that too much, and you're you're straight back into the commitment problem, and there's there's no exactly. possible bargain which 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 could be reached. So that sometimes sometimes the commitment problem is arising from strategic factors alone. The fact that my enemy is going to be more powerful in future, I'm temporarily strong now, and I can lock in that advantage. Right. Other times, the commitment problem comes from the fact that our political elites and circumstances can manufacture this intransigence, manufacture these intangible incentives to fight no matter what. And and that this isn't just happening in Ukraine, Russia. You could see this in ethnic conflicts. You can see this in civil wars where leaders sort of have to walk this perilous path of enraging their group against the other side in order to shut off bad bargains without going so far that they shut off any possibility of a bargain in future. Okay, well, let, let's talk about these paths to peace. So, so that, 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 that's the kind, of con, the kind of political context, I suppose. Um, is it, you mentioned, I think, uh, several in your book. Is it three, independence, checks and balances, rules and enforcement? Um, which of those 
Which of those do you think really is going to come into play kind of first, foremost, primarily or principally here? Like, you know, I mean, how how would this conflict end? Yeah, I mean, so the, the what I was trying to say in the the second half of the book is to say that um, it would be nice to go f- right now. The, 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 the costs of war are a deterrent enough to get us probably at least to a frozen conflict, if not a settlement, but you'd like to have. So the absence of violence, what some people call negative peace, but what you'd like to have is what some people call positive peace. You'd like to have lots of insulation. You'd like to have Russia and the West or Russia and Ukraine. So integrated or an overarching set of international institutions and rules and enforcement and, or whatever that such that this just never needs to occur that they're like the United States and Canada, right. Or, or Britain and France, the, the, the things are so entwined and there's such a rules-based order that conflict, Violent conflict is just not not going to happen in, in 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 for generations and maybe never. Um, I don't see a path to that in Russia versus NATO right now, and I don't see a clear path to that kind of entwining and rules based order between Russia and Ukraine. It doesn't. It's just not clear we have much of an apparatus for anything beyond this sort of tense confrontation that hopefully will simply be nonviolent. Uh, and I think that's because I think that's almost always the case with a with a superpower with where ones where which is ba- where where that superpower we we, have, we essentially have two two powers on either side. You have you know let's call it NATO and the and, and Russia, where they have fundamentally just got a fundamentally different system of organization order, um, and so their interests are completely in conflict with one another. I think I think short of Russia essentially becoming more checked, maybe not full democratization, but short of it becoming more checked, I I don't really see an alternative to like a really tense standoff for generations, one that hopefully just never erupts into conflict like violent conflict again mm. these these paths to peace kind of in a, in a strange way kind of felt like it caused a kind of path to war though because like it, it kind of felt like especially the attempt to entwine uh, the kind of russia in the post-soviet world into uh, you know into the international rules-based order you know to integrate economies to to buy oil to you know, um, create all kinds of export import dependencies. Like this seemed like very deliberately what what Western powers tried to do. I mean, certainly what Germany tried to do. Yeah. Um, and now we have Merkel, you know, um, having to explicitly defend a, a foreign policy predicated on that idea um, in real, you know, in real array um, and 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 widely condemned both, you know, both by the German political establishment uh, as well as analysts who who were always saying that that was a bad idea across the Baltic and Eastern Europe. Um, how how do you make sense of this? Like it it, it was it the the idea was good, but it, it just wasn't implemented enough. Well, I, I listen. I think of it as like if you live on a busy road where there's aggressive drivers, you want to put on speed bumps, and speed bumps are probably almost always a good idea. Um, but they're not going to completely eliminate the risk, right? And so if you if there was an accident on your street and somebody was hit, I don't think you'd say we should be getting rid of these speed bumps. Uh, now you could say, let's not be fooled into complacency by speed bumps and let's recognize that they're speed bumps and not anything more. But I, I think you wouldn't say, oh, let's get rid of all the speed bumps. Mm -hmm. Uh, the fact is, is that there's, there were fundamental interests here that, and, and a set of strategic and non-strategic, they're sort of psychological and 
ideological factors that I think drove Russia to do this despite the costs and despite the economic and social entanglement. Uh, my personal opinion is, and, and so we don't want to judge, we don't want to judge this by the failures. There's all these quiet successes where any number of countries, because they're entangled and because they fear sanctions, don't do nasty things. So I personally think that were it not for this entanglement and were it not for the threat of sanctions and the withdrawal from that entanglement, I think there probably would have been 12 other nasty things that Vladimir Putin would have done in his unchecked interests, pursuing his ideological objectives, pursuing his country's ideological objectives. Um, and so I think it was restraining, but we don't really know. This is the inherent thing that's so difficult to test, at least at this level. What Are there any myths that need to be slayed around path to peace or why will stop you know are there any kind of road hazards in the in in the road ahead that, that have yeah. to be avoided um in in, in thinking about how this war is going to end how this particular um or how wars end in general yeah i mean i think um you know i think there is a i think there is a myth that that nations fight because they're poor uh, and that individuals fight because they're poor uh, that is maybe trotted out to understand or explain terrorism or civil wars and other levels of conflict, gang war, that I think happens not to be true. Uh, it's something I myself believed and started research on and and couldn't quite for a long time figure out why the the evidence wasn't really there to back up the idea that poverty raise the risk of violence in a lot of countries and, and societies. Um, I think it's less relevant in this Russia-Ukraine case, but it's, I think, relevant for understanding conflict more broadly. And the intuition is pretty simple. Like, war is costly. If, if you're fighting over a big pie, you don't want to destroy a share of it before splitting it. You'd rather just split it. And if you're fighting over a small pie, you don't want to destroy a share of it before you split it. If, if anything, when you're fighting over a shrunken and pie because you're in a very poor place and resources are more scarce, you may even have be more averse to destroying a share of that pie. Um, and so, 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 so typically when countries suddenly become more poor or groups suddenly become more poor, whether it's a, a drought or a sudden climate shock or a sudden plunge in the price of whatever it is that you pursue, you, these, these groups aren't more likely to go to war, it turns out. What are the main um, kind of factors, I guess, Chris, around the world that either cause these kind of insulation from these logics to grow or these logics to grow. I mean, kind of scanning them, you know, on the peace side, checks and balances, rules, you know, these very much feel like the kind of assets, obviously, of liberal democracies. And yeah. I mean, kind of thinking even with the war in an end in Russia, we're still going to have an isolated despot believing that um, you know, it, it, it's his um, historical destiny to to, to recover um, lost Russian lands. Yeah, you know, is is it's just a case really that the autocracies, absolutist autocracies, are just more prone to violence, and and the only long term kind of end to to this kind of thing is is to somehow find a way that they can be reformed. I think I think that's a big part of it. I mean, let me give a let me say that a lot of the work being done there is in the absolutist and not the autocracy. That I think there's a possibility of authoritarian peace. Um, so, which is to say that I don't think, and I think there's a more liberal democratic peace has a better chance of success. But I think a lot of work can be done by checking and balancing power even within authoritarian regimes. So, let me give two examples. So, one is like to compare China versus Russia. Power is much 
more institutionalized in a country like China than it is in Russia. So although Xi Jinping is trying to increase his personal control and succeeding over the party, over the over the agenda, uh, and 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 ideologically, um, there's just a lot more. There's just a large number of military, business, political actors in that society that constrain what any leader can do. Um, and I think that's fundamentally stabilizing. And so I think these strong and institutionalized autocracies are much lower risk of of, of invasions. And I think they're much lower risk of, of, of igniting civil wars in their own territory. Likewise, the rules-based order internationally that we have is not democratic. We have a UN Security Council. When the UN Security Council, in its somewhat authoritarian or non-participatory way, when there isn't great power involved, when it's a region of the world that the great powers don't really have a strategic interest in. So a lot of Southeast Asia, a lot of Africa, um, they do a reasonably good job at peace building, right? Because they can come in and they can guarantee these agreements and, and solve commitment problems. They can provide mediators and bargaining tables and reduce uncertainty and misperceptions. They can provide sanctions and foreign aid as a carrot and all sorts of things to sort of counter ideological incentives and unchecked leaders. And so, and they're reasonably good, I think, at building peace. All right. And so that's, so I know, I think that rules-based international order would be more functional if it wasn't sort of stiff and relatively, in some sense, non-participatory and, and inflexible and non-democratic. And I think China would be more stable still, the more checks and balances it had. Um, but, but I don't think authoritarianism is equivalent to uh, uh, conflict. I think it's this personalization of power that's so dangerous at every level of society. Well, actually, so in the last few minutes I have, let's, let's climb down a few levels in society at the end. Because, of course, you know, we, we spend most of our time dwelling on big, grand geopolitics and interstate conflicts. But, but, but to, to, to look at smaller communities um, that, that are themselves, um, you know, um, facing violence and, 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 and thinking about how to um, make themselves more resilient to it, how do you see the ideas in, in your book mapping mapping onto that? You know, I mean, I'm thinking obviously there's there's a tremendous amount of debate around um, the availability of guns, gun control in the United States, um, gang violence, of course, too. Um, you know, is there are there other ideas in the book there about how to um, intervene in those kinds of um, issues and themes to try and make society safer? Yeah, you know, because my day job isn't actually analyzing Ukraine Russia. It's it's I'm working <laughs> on gang warfare in in the United States and Latin America, and I'm working in rebel groups and and warring ethnic villages in West Africa and so forth. And so, uh, so I'm thinking about that micro level. And there's a lot of parallels. So when it comes to gang violence here in Chicago or in Medellin, Colombia, where I spend a lot of time, um, you hear like three stories. You hear a story. Why does this happen? You hear one story. You hear is um, is a story of these intangible or ideological incentives, which is vengeance. Like I'm pursuing. I it's a blood feud between between two sides. Like, and I'm pursuing, you know, you killed my father and then I killed your brother and, and we're both engaged for the purpose of revenge. It's not irrational. It might, there might be an element of rationality, but they don't regret this. This is like, they're, they're fighting, they're paying the costs for purpose. The other story that's very common is one of, of misperceptions and bias, particularly sometimes it's overconfidence, but it's also uh, passions in, in the heat of the moment, hot reactive selves. Um, the third thing that happens, right? So there's, so we're already seeing two of the five, but the third that I think is underrated is like the strategic logic of a lot of gang violence. Mm. Like a, a gang leader here in Chicago who told me how he was engaged in 
uh, he, he, he had to become a killer and he had to put his gang at war against other gangs because they were robbing him. They underestimated, amidst this uncertainty about how strong and resolved he is, they underestimated him and they robbed him. And he realized that he would have to construct a reputation uh, through violence and through retribution, not because he like felt passionate about it and wanted to seek vengeance, but in order to sort of, because there are all these other gangs that were paying attention and he wanted to establish a reputation. Reputation only makes sense amidst uncertainty. Um, and so, but these logics that can operate at the, the lower level sort of can operate at every level. I like to use, for me personally, those three logics of intangibles and misperceptions and uncertainty and the need for reputation building help understand the U.S. invasion of Iraq. So there was a desire for vengeance after um, the attacks of 9-11. There were misperceptions, not just passions, but also intelligence failures. Uh, but the... And we focus on those sort of psychological institutional things a lot. We forget the importance of uncertainty and reputation too often, where the U.S. was perceived as weak, would never put boots on the ground, might bomb a country. Uh, and so the U.S. engaged in a 20-year exercise in reputation building, not because it, uh, not necessarily beca because it made sense to fight that fight for 20 years, but because they were sending a message to every other prior state future adversary terror group about how far they would go even when losing to, uh, to, 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 to basically punish a, an attack on American soil. And so, and, and I think they were as, as gross a failure as that was, I think that was also a success. And so we don't have to judge that as a good thing any more than we can judge that this drug leader, this drug gang leader was doing a good thing by establishing his reputation, right? We can understand that and we can understand their strategic incentives. And is that like, to, at, at, say at the level then of, of I mean, in, in, in some ways is, is actually intervening on the community level. I mean, it feels like that's a lot more malleable. There's a lot more you can actually do when you're not dealing with states to actually change the context in which people live. You know, uh, is, is, is there actually much more potential there to, to actually insert logic, uh, insulation against those logics than there is when we're dealing with nuclear equipped um, no, absolutely. I mean, I think that's why so many states and so many societies are relatively peaceful. So we might be polarized. There might be a lot of loathing and peace. But I think it is uh, in, in, a, in a society with checks and balances, in a society with a strong state and predictable rules and, 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 and strong institutions, in a society where we're mutually interdependent and that can be fostered, I think humans have been really, really good at at reducing interpersonal homicide rates, reducing the risk of civil war. And so we've got vast swaths of the planet that are more peaceful than they've ever been in any part of history. And, and it's the states that have not gotten their, the societies that have not gotten their act together that are experiencing a lot of the domestic, like internal violence today. And then it's the fact that we don't have that overarching order and checks and balances and in institutions at the international level that I think is keeping us from seeing that between states. Have we, have we, so in, in terms of actually institutionalizing peace building on the community level, how, how does that tend to work? I mean, does that tend to be activities that you see being done by states? Does it, does it get built by the communities themselves? You know, well, this gravitational pull towards peace, you know, as you, right. as, as, as you mentioned in the beginning of the book, where does that pull come from in terms of actually the, the people doing it? Well, I mean, I think it comes from this, just the daily horrific cost of the fighting and the growing acknowledgement of everybody on every side that this is terrible and, and the treasury's being drained, you know, whether it's gang. So even gangs try to structure their own peace. 
and and many cities across the Americas, gangs have successfully created criminal orders that keep themselves in building checks and balances and rules and institutions and penalties and, and interdependence. So even they have that. No, normally communities and states have other tools that they can use when those fail. But those incentives are so powerful that even the warring parties themselves, even when they're criminal gangs, often often seek out peace. Now, how they do so is so it's different in every. It's sort of all of these sort of. What they all have in common is they've, they're all identifying which of the five reasons the piece is broken down and they're, they're trying to do something to repair that. But the myriad ways in which this happens is, is I think, different in every context. So it's, it's more of a lens to look at and sort of to sort of like organize our thoughts about all these confusing solutions and problems and rather than a, there's no one specific path to peace. Final, final question um, from me, Chris. And, I, I, you know, th- this takes us well away from the kind of grand theory, actually, just down to the work you actually do in the gangs and in the communities. I mean, that it, it sounds, what's that actually like? I mean, it, it, it feels extremely dangerous to be kind <laughs> of like working with gangs in Colombia. I mean, and not what most academics would, would probably uh, be able to do. I mean, a surprising number do in this. I think I was part of a a movement of, I think anthropologists and sociologists always did. And I was maybe at the vanguard of a group of political scientists and economists who, when I was a graduate student, began doing this work. And, and now there's just innumerable people who have followed. So it, it can be done. It has to be done carefully and selectively. It's almost always done with local collaborators who know the context really, really well. And so I bring my specialties, but they bring theirs in particular. You really need to understand what's safe to do and what's safe not to do. Um, there's a reason I do this in Colombia and not Mexico, for example. And there's a reason I worked in Liberia and not Iraq. I think there were certain things you can't do in some contexts. That said, um, lots of smart and and, and and careful people have gone and, and either as as peace builders or as academics gone into some of these more dangerous people and found the safe space to carve out some sort of peace building activity and how to also research and understand it. So it always can be done, but I think it just has to be done very cautiously and with local collaborators as, as a general rule. And, and the longer answer would take maybe more time than we have right now. And do you, you know, are you, is it observation, like, like embedded observational research? Are you kind of actually interviewing? Is it formal? Like, to just perhaps as a final thing, just just tell us a bit about the actual methodology that uh, as as an academic that you would you would use. Well, I try to approach it from two ways. One is um, much more than you know. I'm sort of part political scientist, part economist. Just trying to do a huge amount of time in speaking to the actors, the armed actors, the non-armed actors, the government, the NGOs, the community members, just to understand how the whole system works. But I also recognize that those kinds of small sample and qualitative conclusions can be really misleading because we tend to remember the most salient things and and we select on the dependent variable and we and we also it's very hard to judge judge what's going on uh solely through these interviews and so the other thing i try to institutionalize is large-scale data collection so in some sense that's been my my one of my contributions is showing that you can go into an ongoing civil war or into a post-conflict period with ex-combatants or into a city full of gangs and actually collect careful block-by-block data on the kinds of things you need to know to solve the problem. And then very often 
a lot of the things that we've believed to be qualitatively true have we've been proven false, both through the data and then through experiments. Natural experiments or actual formal experiments. And so so the qualitative work is like essential, but we can't stop there because I, it, it can be misleading on its own. Wonderful. Well, there you go, everyone. A, a journey from kind of grand geopolitical theory, Russia, Ukraine, down to Colombian gangs and everything from the logics of conflict, how to insulate yourselves from the logic of conflict down to research methodology. Chris, thank you so, so much. Christopher Blackman's book is Why We Fight from Penguin Random House. I've been Carl Miller. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared. Thank you so much for joining us. If you'd like to support us in providing a home for passionate debate, deep discussion and answering the big questions that really matter, do consider becoming an Intelligence Squared Premium Podcast subscriber today. For just a small amount each month, you won't just be directly helping us continue to do what we do. You'll also be getting exclusive episodes each month ad-free listening and early access to currently available via Apple Podcasts. You just need to hit the subscribe button. And if you're not an Apple user, don't worry, we're working on something for you too. Thanks for being a listener, supporting Intelligence Squared, and you're just one click away from getting some exclusive extras too.